0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air, I'm Sarah Fenske. In recent years, 30% of Missouri youth in foster care or group homes have been estimated to be on psychotropic drugs. That's nearly twice the national average. Many are on multiple drugs, and often powerful drugs have been used to treat conditions like ADHD and conduct disorders. That's even though the Federal Drug Administration hasn't approved those drugs for that purpose. Two years ago, a class action lawsuit aimed to change the way Missouri Medicaid's foster kids, and the settlement agreement in that lawsuit recently became final. And yeah, that's going to mean big changes. So joining me to talk about that is John Ammon. He recently retired. Up until a few months ago, he directed the legal clinics at St. Louis University School of Law. And in that role, he took the lead as a lawyer on this case. So John Ammon, thank you for coming out of retirement to join us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And we're also joined by Dr. Katie Plack. She's the Division Chief of Adolescent Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at the Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Plax, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, Dr. Plax, I understand you're very familiar with the problems faced by Missouri kids in foster
2: care. Um, Why is that? What what role do you have that brings you in contact Mm -hmm. with them? So thanks for talking about this very important issue. It's really important, especially for these kids whose voices don't often get heard. Um, So the way I'm involved is that I'm the medical director for a program we started at a youth center that I run called The Spot, Um, We run a program for young people in foster care, which is called COACH, Um, uh, and basically that program has been in existence since 2011. Um, We've served now close to 700 young people in foster care. Um, We provide a medical home and comprehensive services to young people between the ages of 13 to 17 when they come into foster care in St. Louis City and County, and we continue to provide those services until they turn 25, which is the age that people age out of our youth center.
0: So give us an overview. What did you see in terms of the use of psychotropic drugs and Mm -hmm. this
2: population of kids you were dealing with? So I think it's really important to keep in mind um, about the devastating impact of trauma on young people's lives. So coming into the foster care system is an automatic trauma um, because you're being removed from your family. Um, the other way that we know is that, you know, kids don't come into foster care lightly. So generally they've experienced significant abuse or neglect. When you start adding these traumas up, people respond um, in all kinds of ways. Um, They may act out, they may withdraw, they may appear depressed, Um, any of those things are possible. And we see all of that in the young people that we see. The other thing that we know is that trauma is devastating to our bodies, so it is actually manifests in our bodies and we know from long-term longitudinal studies that have been done that trauma impacts people's uh, health and well-being over the course of a lifetime so you can see increased heart disease diabetes um, you know high hypercholesterolemia you can see obviously mental health substance use um, sexual health reproductive health really there is isn't a, a system in our bodies that are not impacted by trauma and so in pediatrics we've recognized this and the American Academy of Pediatrics describes that children and youth and foster care are the most needy population in pediatrics even greater than kids who face homelessness mm-hmm. and so what you're seeing is that the devastating impact of trauma on health and then of course it also affects how we behave if um, Young people don't experience love and caring and belonging and nurturing. That has very significant effects over the course of a lifetime. And unfortunately for many young people in foster care, we see these devastating effects every day.
0: Now, when I'm hearing that as a layperson, I'm thinking, OK, well, these are probably kids who need psychiatric medication. This is going to be what's going to help them with mm-hmm. these problems. But it's not that simple.
2: It is not that simple. So. Um, You know, the evidence base for trauma treatment is um, a therapy called Trauma-Focused Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Um, That is a method of therapy that um, really helps people. I would, uh, the way I describe it is it helps people change the channels of their thinking. So... um, You may be on the channel of negative thoughts and anxiety, and cognitive behavioral therapy helps you to change the channel to a more positive one. Um, Imagine the Hallmark Channel for (laughs) extremes here. Um, So, But that's really the purpose of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, There are other treatment modalities that are helpful to trauma as well. So um, EMDR, there are um, DBT. These are all names of therapies that have an evidence base. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that I think is important is The lawsuit is not saying that psychiatric care and treatment is not important to the overall health and well-being of kids. Um, What the lawsuit is really about is multiple psychotropic drugs, the age at which these drugs are prescribed, the long-term effects of these drugs without monitoring care and treatment. So there are many young people in foster care that need treatment for depression, need treatment for anxiety, Need treatment even for more serious mental health issues, um, but you know typically we try to manage these treatments if medication is needed with one drug, <laughs> you know maybe two drugs, um, you know. So if they have you know for example um, ADHD and depression, right, that may take two different medications, but you know what the lawsuit was really highlighting was, you know there were very young children on multiple drugs that were not approved for the use in that age group. There were multiple drugs being prescribed over the course of time without any kind of care and monitoring. and that the drugs in these combinations were having serious effects on kids in their lives and how they were able to carry out their lives at school, at home, you know, for young people that are uh, youth age, you know, in employment, right? And so they were feeling poorly, and the medical follow-up care and treatment was not being offered in ways that was organized in a quality fashion to meet their needs.
0: John Ammon, the lawsuit had a a phrase in there that I thought was just very telling. It alleged that these drugs were being used as, quote, chemical straitjackets. Tell me what you meant by that.
1: Well, um, I can't take credit for the entire lawsuit. We had great partners with uh, Children's Rights out of New York, the National Center for Youth Law out of Oakland, Oakland, California, and the law firm of Morgan Lewis based in Chicago. That phrase, Sarah, related to our uh, perception and reporting by many kids in foster care that they were being kept quiet, they were being kept uh, placid with medications so they didn't cause a problem. And what people came to us and said, foster parents and teachers and others that said, we've got these violent behaviors we have these disruptive hate behaviors at home at school we have to do something now and the kind of therapies that dr Plax is talking about those take time they take patience and people want a quick answer and the the message of the lawsuit was that too often the answer was to turn to the medications too many too early too often and and just too, too much of a prescription, as Dr. Plack said, in a lot of drugs that were off-label, not prescribed for that use. So that's what we were talking about, that the medications were being used to literally restrain kids from misbehaving when other methods had not even been tried yet.
0: For those of you listening, um, we're wondering, have you been part of Missouri's foster care system? What did you witness related to the medication of kids within it? Maybe you were one of those kids. Maybe you were a foster parent. Give us a call at 314 382 8255. That's 382 TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at STLpublicradio.org. John Ammon, I'm wondering, as you dug into this problem, uh, was Missouri unique in how messed up this was?
1: I don't believe so. Uh Children's Rights uh, was in Missouri for a couple of years before the suit was even filed investigating. But they have found this problem in in almost every state. And we think there will be other lawsuits, maybe other advocacy to correct this problem. So I don't think Missouri was unique uh, in having this problem. Um, Some other states have programs that they've started without uh, facing lawsuits, but I don't think there's anything on this scale. This is a 30-page settlement that deals with everything from the gathering of medical records to secondary review, having another set of doctors look at uh, prescriptions, uh, informed consent is a big part of it, and training is a huge part of it. Uh the, the fact that we have this 30-page settlement doesn't mean anything if foster parents and caseworkers don't know what to look for and don't know what resources to use when they, they observe this happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of training I- included in the settlement as well.
0: Um, Now, the lawsuit, it it talked about how these medications weren't just something that was temporarily being used, that some of these impacts are lifelong. Dr. Plax, uh,
2: give Mm -hmm. us an example of that. So uh, the development of diabetes. So... You know, several of the antipsychotic psychotropic medications can cause significant weight gain, which then can lead to the development of type 2 diabetes. Um, You know, that's a serious lifelong multi-system problem. that also is quite frankly, you know, not easy to manage, you know, so you're talking about a disease that involves, you know, changing your diet, changing your exercise, medications, ongoing medical management and treatment, you know, so it's not something that just goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a, you know, lifelong change to a young person's life that um, is a potential side effect from a medication, if kids are not monitored, um, and so I think that's the other thing about this is that you know with ongoing monitoring, these drugs can be used safely if prescribed in a way that is consistent with quality standards, um, but they can't uh, be prescribed without monitoring.
1: Sir, I would add to that after the lawsuit was filed, we heard from hundreds of people. And really, it broke down into two categories. One was uh, natural parents who said, my child was taken away during a period of stress, and I got my child back after two years, and they were messed up. Mm -hmm. They were failing in school when they were doing well before. Uh, Some people said, I don't recognize my own daughter, my own son, because of the medications. The other group we heard from... Were people in their mid-20s, a lot of them, who said, thank you for doing this. I was in foster care almost my entire life, and I am having problems now, still can't hold a job, can't find housing. I struggle with substance abuse. And these people will tell you they blame the medication they received when they were 8, 10 years old that as Dr. has said, it changes the brain. It, it changes the way you think and it changes things permanently. And we heard heartbreaking stories from people in their 20s uh, who say, this shouldn't have happened. I didn't, I, I didn't want these medications. I didn't need these medications. A lot of them will tell you that. And it's affected my life forever.
0: I actually want to go to the phone lines. We've got Rose calling from St. Louis, um, and I think she wants to um, to jump into this conversation. Rose, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air.
3: Hi, thanks for taking my call. I am calling. I worked with children who were in the foster care system, first as a foster care case manager in St. Louis City and then later as a special education teacher. And one of the things that I saw as I was actually in these these appointments at the psychiatrist, getting um, getting kids medication and trying to get them the support that they needed, um, and then as a teacher trying to help my coworkers understand what these kids were going through, is how that overmedication was really a part of how it was a systemic breakdown of how people were trying to help kids sit in where they were too traumatized mm-hmm. to be able to really function.
0: Rose, thank you for that. I see Dr. Plax nodding. It Mm -hmm. sounds like this experience fits with with what you've observed.
2: Yeah, I mean, I... I'm currently the parent of two teenage sons, um, and obviously most of my involvement in the foster care world has been with teenagers. It is not easy to parent teenagers, even in the best of circumstances, and then um, you're talking about young people who have experienced such significant trauma, and I think Rose's perspective from both a case manager as well as the teacher perspective just highlights that this is really difficult, and these kids may require require special services that come in the form of therapy and support and long-term involvement in their lives and um, that will never have a quick fix um, because uh, it takes time to heal trauma
1: Sarah I would just add to that that one of the major aspects of the lawsuit is the creation of a new entity in the state of Missouri and it's going to be run out of the University of Missouri at Columbia, and it's already up and running. It's called the Center for Excellence, Um, and and it also has the heading of Statewide Clinical Consultant. These are psychiatrists at the University of Missouri who have formed a panel now that will review cases where kids are prescribed these psychotropic medications in certain cases. For example, if a child three years of age or under is prescribed one of these, there'll be an automatic review to say, is this appropriate or not? If kids are given three or more of the drugs at any given time, there'll be an automatic review. So the Department of Social Services who negotiated this agreement with us, to their credit, that's one of the major permanent aspects of this moving forward, where foster parents can call the children themselves teenagers who say this is a problem they can contact that agency that that new entity and and other people who deal with kids in foster care now have a resource of professional psychiatrist who can be reached by phone to say, are these medications appropriate or not? Okay.
0: We want to thank Rose for that call. Uh, We're talking to John Ammon of St. Louis University Law School's Legal Clinics and Dr. Katie Plax of Washington University School of Medicine. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to our conversation. We're talking about the settlement in a class action lawsuit against the Missouri Department of Social Services. It has to do with the over-medication and improper medication of kids in Missouri's foster care system. We're talking to John Ammon, who was until recently the director of legal clinics at St. Louis University's law school, and Dr. Katie Plax, who is a pediatrician at Washington University School of Medicine. We also have a third guest with us today, and that is Chris Daydant. She was one of the lead plaintiffs in the lawsuit that was filed against the Missouri Department of Social Services, and Chris, I understand that you're you got involved with this system. You're retired from the Columbia schools. You got involved as a CASA—that's a court-appointed special advocate. You're there to advocate for a foster child who's there in the court system. What made you decide to get involved with that program?
4: Well, my daughter and son-in-law um, became foster parents started about six years ago. And I just saw that there was a need, and they had talked about CASA volunteers. The kids that they had didn't have one, and only about a quarter of the kids in foster care get a CASA volunteer. So you wanted to help some kids in in
0: this way. You ended up getting assigned to a young woman who we'll call Mary. That's not her real name. We want to respect her confidentiality. You were also assigned to her three siblings. Now, Mary was 11 years old at the time. When did you start to become concerned about the medication that she was on?
4: Um, I was probably just about four or five months into working with her.
0: And what were you observing that gave you concern?
4: Um, there was a period of time where they put her on a new medication and she had been doing really pretty well I mean I'm not saying her behavior was excellent but she was doing better and they put her on a new medication and within two weeks she was getting in fights sometimes daily sometimes more than daily Um, and I thought that it might have to do with the, with the addition of this, of this drug.
0: And what happened when you tried to raise these concerns through the, the proper channels?
4: Um, I, I tried to contact the facility where she was at. She's, she was in a residential facility. And um, I really couldn't get anyone to talk, to talk to me. They decided that it was just her behavior and she was going through a rough time and um i call i finally ended up calling the psychiatrist's office to say to ask him if he knew that she, her behavior had increased and was causing problems and the woman that the nurse that i talked to said that he didn't have any record of of that in her files and so that was very concerning to me and you also ended up raising concerns about her shaking. What what kind of response did you get to that? <laughs> Again, they said that I was the only one that saw the, the shaking. And they said she needs to eat more frequently. And I, you know, that if she eats, she doesn't shake. And so I took a meal to her and, um, you know, she still was shaking afterwards. The, They just didn't really listen at all.
0: Dr. Plax, the lawsuit says that Mary, this young woman, was on something called Seroquel, and that's for people with bipolar disorder, even though she hadn't been diagnosed Mm -hmm. as bipolar. What kind of impact could that have on a child to be put on that kind of medication?
2: Well, I I think you're hearing, right? So, um, you know, and... uh, I think the other thing that's really important about what you're saying is that a lot of psychiatric care and treatment requires careful, close observation by people around the child Um, in order to give the treating professional feedback about how things are going. Um, because unlike a lot of other diseases, we don't have a specific test to run and say, is the behavior better or worse? You know, we really require subjective observations from people close to the child on a regular basis to inform the care and treatment. And um, this is, I think, another very important part of the lawsuit when it comes to consent for medications, as well as when it comes to medication changes, in that um, people who are the legal guardians of the child need to be present, hear the risks and benefits of the medication, as well as the possible side effects, so that they're really informed about what to look for, um, what changes they can expect to see, what are the behaviors the medication is targeting, and then give feedback about whether it's working. The other thing I want to put a huge thanks in to the settlement team is the whole notion of youth ascent. So, um, This means that a young person actually has to be given that same information and has to say, okay, I'm willing to try this treatment. Um, And that's really important for young people because then they also have a say. They're empowered. Exactly, exactly. About like whether they're going to take the medicine or not, what they can expect from the medication, and be fully informed about their care and treatment.
1: It's funny, Sarah, that... You know, teenage kids uh, don't like school very much uh, to be stereotypical about it. But I can't tell you how many of the kids in foster care we talked to uh, with regard to this case who said, I don't want to fall asleep in school anymore. Hmm. I want to be awake in school. I want to learn. And these medications are making me fall asleep every day in school. And of course, it's a problem for the teachers and other people at the school because they think the person's not getting enough sleep or they're goofing off or whatever. But these kids, they, they don't want to be falling asleep. They want to do their work and they want to be awake. And the medications very often interfere with that.
0: Chris, was Mary the, the young foster child that, that you were trying to help? Was she troubled by what was happening to her physically and how this was affecting her?
4: To To a certain degree, but you know being 11 and 12 years old um she didn't have she wasn't really attuned to her own body mm-hmm.
0: now i understand you ended up developing a, a really good rapport with mary and and she looked forward to your visits but then you got involved in this lawsuit tell us
4: what happened after that we um we before the lawsuit we went out for lunch. I would take her shopping. We would have long visits. I observed her at school. Um, But after the lawsuit, I was restricted to two hours um, every two weeks and um, two phone calls at 15 minutes each.
0: And, And on what grounds? Did they explain to you Um, hey, we're going to cut you back to this.
4: They really didn't. Um, I wasn't allowed to talk about the lawsuit at all or about anything health-related. They
0: told you when you were talking to Mary. You couldn't talk to her about anything health-related. No, no, or therapy. So at that point, John, Mary lost the one person who was trying to advocate for her within this system. How frustrating was that to see that as a result of this litigation, that this ends up hurting one of the people who's there as a plaintiff?
1: It it was very frustrating, and there were other uh, issues along the way where we didn't think kids in foster care, including some of the named plaintiffs, were getting the, the right care. But I have to say for Chris that she showed the courage and even in the face of that, participated in the lawsuit to the very end and even till today. She was in the room for multiple mediation sessions where we worked out this agreement. She was in the room, it was Chris and about 20 lawyers and the director of the Department of Social Services and she told the rest of us, the way things were. And we listened to her, and she spoke about kids and what they were going through, not only Mary, but other kids that she's ob- observed. So Chris is the cra- courageous one here, stepping forward and and staying the course even in the face of some hurdles in the way.
0: And Chris, that's that's great to hear that that work you put in had a payoff, even though it must have been so painful at the time to see your relationship with Mary put under these, these conditions.
4: Yes, and it's actually gotten worse. So, um, In terms I of being able to have right, access to I her. haven't been able to see her for over six months now.
0: And is that by her choice or that is by the choice of, of the state?
4: That's by the choice of the family support team. Um, she went to a foster home, and when she made that move in June, um, they decided that the visits needed to stop. Okay.
0: I want to go back to the phone lines. Eileen is calling from Kirkwood. Um, Hi, Eileen, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Thank you for joining us. Um, I understand you've also been involved with this issue.
3: Well, we have um, four children, two of whom we adopted through foster care through the city of St. Louis. And um, with all my children, I think mental health issues with young people is, you know, very important and a difficult subject today. But Um, In particular, our youngest, who was through foster care, um, when you were talking about trying the multiple medications, sometimes ones that are not labeled specifically, he is eight years old, and we have tried so many different things, and I think it's difficult to sort of to know. I wish that mental illness was something that they could take a blood test and say, okay, well, this works and this doesn't, and so much of it is subjective and up to the parents and up to communication with the doctors and doctors calling back and schools. And it's just such a a challenging thing for all kids. But I think when you when you take in children with traumatic histories, you're dealing with so many more layers of that um, of that history and, and, and just wanting to fix it and not knowing how. And we've tried all different kinds of medicines. And who knows, you know, I, I'm hopeful that we're not doing more damage than good, but we also, he has to go to school and live and and be, you know, able to get along in his life, so
0: yeah, well, it's a tough thing. I, I mean, that is so tough, and I think we're all, our hearts all go out to you trying to deal with that, and, you know, we're sending good wishes your way. John?
1: All I would say to Eileen is that with the settlement, there's another set of eyes Uh, who can look at this. Uh, We're not saying all medications are bad for mental health issues. What we're saying is, as Dr. Plax indicated earlier, it'd be good to have another set of eyes, a psychiatrist, look at this and say, yes, you're doing the right thing for your child or your foster child. Or, you know what, maybe we'll wean them off of some of these medications or let's try something else. All we're saying is let's have a secondary review, as it's called, in the profession, and let's have another let's have another psychiatrist take a look
0: John in this settlement you are talking about a lot of changes and they sound great I find myself wondering what kind of financial commitment does this require on the part of Missouri and what are we going to do to make sure that they don't um, fall short in terms of what's been promised here
1: well that's interesting long term we think there's an argument that says this will save money for the state of Missouri fewer prescriptions for very expensive medications There's no dollar amount in the settlement. The state has made certain commitments. For example, they have at least 12 people right now gathering medical records, um, and they've instituted the Center for Excellence. But here's the the issue, Sarah, and Dr. Plax knows this well. Caseworkers in Missouri are grossly underpaid. Mm -hmm. We're near the bottom of the 50 states. Uh, There's a very high turnover rate. Um, and it's difficult to keep people in those positions. And the settlement's not going to be as effective if we don't have uh, good stability in the caseworkers. Let's pay them more. Let's hire more of them. I think everybody agrees we need more caseworkers and people with training. And the settlement does call for that training. So there are there are issues. And... Um, you know, we can't force people to apply for jobs as caseworkers. It's a tough job. <laughs> it, it's very tough. It's long hours. And you worry about these kids. And so that, there there are issues with the implementation. And uh, what we've given is a roadmap for Missouri and hopefully for other states to follow. But implementation is something we're going to watch. And the And the federal judge, Judge Lowry in Kansas City, who graciously approved this settlement, will have oversight of this settlement for a while.
0: So
2: you can go back to her
0: if people fall out of compliance. We can. Dr. Plax.
2: Um, One of the other things uh, that I'm very grateful for in the settlement is a data validator. Um, So uh, in the settlement, there's exhibit B for anybody who's nerdy like me and likes to read the documents. Um, And in that document is actually set criteria for outcomes in order for the state to work its way out of the settlement agreement. And um, those outcomes include kind of Monitoring of the medications, monitoring of health conditions, you know, forms and exams happening um, in uh, times that have been shown to lead to quality care. And you have an outside data validator making sure those things are happening. So I feel like this is set up for accountability and partnership. Um, These jobs are hard. This work is hard. Working with children and youth in foster care is a tough job. um, And we need really good people who love and care about kids to do it. And my hope is with the settlement that we can actually all be working together for the best interests of kids to make a difference in their lives so that the trajectory can be from trauma to resilience. We just have time for one more quick question. This came in by email. I thought it was worth asking you
0: about, John. Um, Tom writes, should the physicians who misprescribe psychotropic drugs for these kids be disciplined by the state, including possibly losing their medical license? Have any of the physicians been disciplined? And if none have been disciplined, why is that so? Do you want to speak to that?
1: Well, I'm not aware of anybody disciplined for for this particular issue. And as Dr. Plax has indicated, this is a very subjective area. Now, having said that, if somebody believes that there is medical malpractice that's occurred, um, definitely consult with a lawyer and and review the case. So um,
0: maybe go to the SLU legal clinic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, uh, <laughs> You're you, retired. You could. I'm, I'm we'd,
1: kidding. We probably <laughs> refer you to somebody else. But um, so that's really a separate issue. and And I will say, uh, in defense of the doctors, it's a complicated area. and and it it's something that there's not an easy answer for or a blood test for, as we said. but but here's the the benefit of this. We hope the settlement will help produce better medical records. You've got family practitioners and others who are prescribing medications with virtually no medical records, or you did up for a while. Think about this, Sarah. You're a foster mom. The state drops off a child on Friday night, a two-year-old, and you take the two-year-old to your pediatrician the next week to have them checked out. And the doctor says, has this child had their immunizations? And the foster mom says, "Uh, how would I know? And the pediatrician says, what medications are they on? And the foster mom says, "Uh, how would I know? So up till now, there has been only spotty medical records and that sort of thing. So the the collection of electronic medical records that are accessible by foster parents, by caseworkers, should help this issue of the doctors having all the information they need to do the prescription.
0: Well, John Ammon of St. Louis University School of Law Legal Clinics, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Dr. Katie Plax of Washington University School of Medicine, thank you for being here. Thank you. And Chris Dedant, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.